Blessed are you, Father. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has given to me a word of life and by faith the anointing to share it here this morning. In the gospel about Jesus, as recorded by John, his disciple, towards the end, he says why and he wrote what he did. In chapter 20, in verse 30 and 31, it says that many more things, many more signs that Jesus performed in the presence of his disciples, but these are recorded that you might have life so that you may know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing that you may have life. We're going to be talking today about do you believe? Before you answer that question, I'm going to ask you the question again at the end of this morning's sermon. But before you answer that question, do you believe sufficiently to respond to Jesus' call to follow Him? Are you prepared to abandon everything else to follow Him? Because this is extremely important. We need to ask ourselves some sub-questions when we consider the question, do we believe? Are we satisfied with the fruit that's coming from our life? Are we satisfied with the victory that we're experiencing in our walk? Are we satisfied with our ability to let the old man stay dead? Or do we continually run back and rely on the things that we know and that we have in our minds and have had some success in the past and run to Jesus and run to God last? Are you content with this life, that of your Christian life that you're experiencing? If you're honest, along with me, I would say no. I'm not totally content with where I am. And that's why we need to understand that the reason we're having these problems and I'm having these problems is that we really don't understand the fullness of the gospel. Because if we knew what the good news really was, the fullest impact, meaning, and availability to us, we wouldn't have these problems. We wouldn't be distracted. We wouldn't be tripped up. So let's talk about that gospel. I love the way communion was taken here this morning, the story that was shared. And I love the way uh, Dory uh, presented her piece also. It, they've, they've actually stolen some lines out of my sermon because we're going to start out this morning with the high-level picture because it's hard to understand the gospel unless you understand the story of the Bible. So briefly, we're going to start with the story, and then we're going to funnel down into John's gospel, where we're going, to, we're going to stay today for the rest of the sermon. But you need to understand the gospel fits within the context of a story. And I love the way uh, David Pawson, one of my favorite Old Testament scholars, put it. He said that the Bible is is the story of how God came up with a bride for His Son. That sounds a little, uh, a little weird, I know, but if you think it through, it really is true. Because Jesus, the Son of God, is God. 
So how does God get a group of people together for him to love and, and to have that love returned for eternity? It's like getting a bride for himself, for his son. So this is how the story unfolds. And for the sake of time, we can't share all the scriptures. But this is how the story of the Bible unfolds. God, in his infinite wisdom, infinite knowledge, and he is love. So as such, he wanted to create a creature that he could love and be loved in return. But in his infinite wisdom, he knew that he couldn't make this creature love him because that wouldn't be love at all. Love requires a choice. And if the creature didn't have a choice, it wouldn't really be love. But also in his infinite wisdom, before he created that human, that creature, he knew that he would never be able to live up to the perfect love that he was going to offer to his, to his human. They would never be able to do that in return. They were going to fail, and as failing, they would fall. And you read about that in the beginning of Genesis, in the garden, when man fell. Well, once he, fed, once he would fall, God had a plan to recover him before he created you. This is awesome. I read in the scripture, it says that before I was formed in my mother's womb, he had a plan for my life and for your life. So he knew you were going to fail. He knew that I was going to fail. And the way he was going to get us to love him is he was going to demonstrate such an extravagant love that we couldn't help but respond back in love. In fact, so much of an extravagant love that he personally came back to save us and redeem us. He personally offered his body to be tortured and sacrificed. God himself saved me, saved you. Such extravagant love demands love in return. So we're going to be drilling down from this storyline because the end of that story leads us to the, the, the salvation, the, the imparting of the Spirit, the living and walking in the Spirit until we come to the fullness and culmination of our life where we get to spend eternity in a loving relationship with the God that created us. So this is kind of the storyline. But you need to understand that God has done everything. There's, there's virtually nothing that is uniquely done by you. Not only has he provided the way of salvation, he's given you the seed of faith to believe that story. He has literally done everything. And that's kind of the point of the story that Jesus told that we're going to look at today. So we need to understand that the gospel, and if I asked each of you what exactly is the gospel, I might get different answers from, from each of you. You've heard it preached, and I have too, that the gospel is Jesus died for our sins. Well, yes, that's true, but that's a little sad. Then I've also heard that Jesus died for my sins and he rose from the dead that I could have life. That's better, but still lacking. I don't want to stay where I am. I don't want to live and struggle in this life alone and then get my salvation in the by and by. So the fact that he, he rose so that I could have life is not so great. The real good news 
is access to the kingdom is now. He not only died and rose from the dead that you might have life, but that you might have it now and have it to the full. And this is what Jesus is going to try to explain to his disciples as he as he describes the kingdom and the new life and in turn to us. Okay, so let me summarize this this idea of the kingdom like this, because you've heard it preached before that you, you can't do things to be saved. Let me help you understand that a little bit. There's no level of doing that can accomplish anything of value in the spirit world. What actually accomplishes something is being someone that does good. So you can take a monkey and train him how to behave like a Christian, but no matter how hard that monkey goes through the motions, he can never be human and he can never be a Christian. It's not about doing the things. It's about being a person that does those kinds of things. Do you understand the difference? Okay, so the good news is that this is available. This life that produces this result is available to us now. Christ in me, the hope of glory, it says in John 14. Now, how do I know this is true? I know it's true because I've experienced it. And if you read the scripture in uh, 2 Corinthians, uh, the first chapter, it says that we're given the earnest of the spirit. Earnest of the spirit. There's some of you here today that might be realtors. You know what earnest money is. It's money paid up front to show that you're serious about finishing the transaction. God is so serious about us joining together with him in eternity. He gives us a down payment, an earnest of the spirit to live in us now as proof he's going to carry this through. So this earnest of the spirit, I can feel his work in me. I can see the changes that he's making in me. He is changing me in to that person that wants to do good. I don't want to do bad anymore. It's no longer attractive. But I don't have to have a self-improvement project to do good. He's changing me into a person that wants to do these things. You get it? Okay, so the rest of the sermon now is very simple in its structure. It's two stories and a question. The first story is a personal story for my life because I want to make darn sure you understand this idea of identity and becoming something. And then the second story is from the scripture. And we're going to read Jesus's words from John chapter 15. So the first story, what we're trying to help you and I understand, this is an issue of being. It's taking on a new life, a, D, a DNA um, if you permit me to call it that. In my life, when I was a young boy, still in elementary school, every summer for the summer break, I would spend two weeks in New Orleans at my godparents' house. I grew up Catholic, so I had godparents, a godfather and a godmother. They owned a restaurant on Poydra Street in New Orleans. And I would bust tables, make sandwiches, do whatever chores they had for me to do. But at the end of each day, my godfather taught me to take all, all the leftovers, all the scraps, and to assemble them neatly on paper plates. And we would go outside together and we'd put these plates on top of the trash cans. 
And then we would come back inside and we'd look through the window and we'd watch the homeless people come eat off of those plates. They didn't have to dig in the trash. We would lay out the food for them. Amongst these homeless was a gang of young boys. And to make the short story short, my godfather befriended the leader of this gang and eventually adopted him. So he adopted this homeless boy and think about it. This young man is now the only child of my godparents, the legal, the legal child of my grandparents. He has a right to everything they own, the restaurant, all of his money, all of his wealth now legally belongs to him as the inheritance because of his identity. He is a child of my godfather. He didn't have to do anything. In fact, I'd love to say that the, you, they lived happily ever after, but you and I both know that's not the way it worked. As soon as he was adopted, he continued would go back to the streets. He continued to get in trouble, and he continued to steal things and sell them on the street. He didn't understand his new identity. It's not an issue of the doing. There's no amount of doing that could have made him a child to inherit this wealth. But the identity put him in line to inherit everything. My story continues. I have three grown children and nine grandchildren. My second son and his wife, David and Betsy, they have six children. Three of those children are adopted. Interestingly for this sermon, <laughs> they, all three of them are a different race, different ethnic background, and different e socioeconomic situation that they were adopted from. But once the papers are signed, no matter what color they are, what ethnic group, whether they were rich or poor, whether mom is in jail, they are all children of my son and have a right to inherit everything that he owns. Do you get it? It's an issue of identity. It has nothing to do with, with what they did. My son sought them out and adopted him and her and him. <laughs> so um, the three adopted children. So you see how identity works? So now let's shift gears and move to the Gospel of John. Before we read the text, I want to make sure we put the Gospel in context. I love that Dory said that. You stole part of my sermon. You don't ever want to read something without putting it in context. Because the context adds to the understanding of the story. So we're going to be reading in chapter 15. But John's gospel is laid out in 21 chapters. Chapter 1 through 11 or is his writings about Jesus' ministry for three years. The, th the three years of his ministry. And he ministered, as you remember from your reading in Galilee. He took a little jaunt into Samaria. And then uh, every year he would go down to Jerusalem in the area of Judea for the feast. In the first three years, in chapter 11, the story radically changes. Because in chapter 11 is when he raises Lazarus from the dead. And when he does that, if you read the text, it says that this was the straw that broke the camel's back. The religious saw him as a threat, and they set out to get rid of him. And he, they eventually uh, uh, killed him, had him executed. But this is the turning point. 
in chapter 12 through chapter 21 is only the next few days. So the first 11 chapters, three years, once he raises Lazarus from the dead, it only takes a few days for them to kill him. Okay, so in that last series of things that John documents, he documents something very precious to us because it's, it's, uh, it's affectionately called Jesus' farewell discourse. In chapters 13 to 17, Jesus is frantically trying to help his disciples understand this new life that he keeps talking about. Frantically tries to get them to understand that I'm going to die. You know that, right? I'm going to die, and, and, but I'm going to come back. He's frantically trying to, to get them past all of their, their blinders and help them understand how this kingdom works. And he's running out of time. Okay, so uh, the quick context that leads us to chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, is what we're going to be reading. And you can put it up on the slide if you, if you like. Uh, they are in Bethany, and they're going to travel from Bethany uh, past the temple in, in Jerusalem to the north side of the temple to where the Gethsemane was because they're celebrating the Last Supper. And in chapter 14, uh, 13 and 14, he's given them his farewell discourse, his instruction at the table while they're celebrating the Last Supper. And then at the end, at the end of the Last Supper, you remember his quote, um, it is time, he says, it is time. And they rise from the table and they begin to walk uh, from the table out across Jerusalem to the Gethsemane where he prayed and eventually was captured and executed. So the reason it's important, like Dory said, context is important, is that it helps understand why he said what he said based on the context that you now know. They are walking north from Bethany. They're passing by the temple. Keep that in mind as we read. And we'll go now to verse 1, chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will bear even more fruit. You are already clean by, because of the word that I have spoken. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Listen, apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus uses this metaphor to help them understand the kingdom of God and how it works. A metaphor is a simple example. It uses it as an example of something common and easy to understand to, to explain something that's more complex or elusive to understand. I would say that the infinite uh, wisdom of the kingdom of God is an elusive concept for us to understand. So he's going to help them using a human example to get them started down that path. Okay, so he uses something very common. He uses the idea of vine and branches and gardener. Why did he choose to tell them that story? The one thing I can tell you about God 
And Jesus, because he is God, is God doesn't chit-chat. Okay? When God speaks, he speaks with purpose. He speaks with intent. And the word says that when his word goes forth, it never returns to him void. But it always accomplishes what he desires and achieves the purpose for which he sends it. So it's important to listen to what he says because he's speaking with purpose, not just making up a story. So back to Dory's context, why would he talk about a vine and branches? They're walking past the eastern gate of the temple to get the Gethsemane. They have to look towards the temple. On the archway to the temple is a huge gold vine with plump grapes on it. It was put there to symbolize the glory of God's people and their works in the world. Isn't that interesting? Okay. Gold representing something very valuable. So the very valuable people of God going out into the world and bearing fruit, bearing God's fruit out in the world. So he looks at that, and I kind of think he pointed at it, and he said, I am the true vine, and you're the branches. So they're looking at that. Wow, those plump grapes. We're the branches. Oh, okay, so he's going to help them understand this, okay? This is a metaphor to help them understand. What Jesus is saying here is that the key to kingdom life is in understanding this metaphor. The key to the kingdom life is in understanding this example I'm giving you. Now, interesting, because of what he's chosen, it says that the kingdom of God is not an organization. It's an organism. It's like plant life, which I think your pastors have decided to call this sermon. <laughs> it's like plant life. The kingdom works like a, a branches attached to a vine and producing fruit. It's an integrated system. It's a new worldview. It's a different way of, of getting resources and thinking and doing things. Okay, and Jesus says it's extremely important. In fact, it's critical that you understand this. And I'm about to be taken from you, so listen closely. He's urgent in helping them to understand. Now, notice in the example he chose, he didn't just say it's like a vine and branches. He said it's like a vine and branches, and the Father is the gardener. No gardener plants things just for the heck of it. You plant it to produce fruit. So what Jesus is saying is that if you understand this, my father takes responsibility for you preparing fruit. God personally takes responsibility for the vine and the branch to produce fruit. And he says, you're the branch. Now, interestingly, I don't think we have any Hebrews in here. So I think all of us are Gentile believers, which means there's another metaphor that comes into play. You've heard that we're grafted in. Everybody heard that before? Okay, we're not only a branch, but we're a grafted branch. Now, listen closely what a grafted branch is. And it, it kind of sends tingles <laughs> when I think about it. A grafted branch is a branch that literally is cut off from a, a plant. It's severed from a plant that is weak or sickly or prone to be sickly. It's cut away from it. It no longer can draw life from a weak 
unhealthy plant. It's grafted into a strong root and it begins to pull life from the healthy plant, the strong plant. Now listen to what he's saying. As you begin to draw life from the vine, and Jesus says, I am the true vine, I'm the real vine. As you begin to draw life from the healthy plant, the strong plant, what happens if you're a grafted branch? You begin to take on the life of the plant you've been grafted to. You slowly are transforming away from the weak, sickly thing you used to be, and you're slowly becoming healthy and strong to the point that you become so healthy and so strong, you bear fruit. Okay? So not only do you bear fruit, but where does the fruit come from? The Father. The Father is responsible for making it happen. And can you create fruit? Oh, that's not what it says. You bear the fruit that you're given by the life that's flowing from the vine. The whole responsibility for you producing fruit is for you not to mess it up. The life is coming from the all-powerful God. It's flowing through the vine who is the true vine, Jesus personally. And all you have to do is not mess up the life flow that is trying to flow through you. That's, this is all of what Jesus is saying here by saying this is how the kingdom works. So then he, um, one verse, I'm sure you would ask the question if I didn't say something. So he mentions in this text, he says that, that you are already clean. And you may have scratched your head over that. What does he mean? Well, he's talking about, think about when the branch is attached to the new vine, it begins to purge all of the old stuff and the corrupt stuff, and it begins to take on a new life. He's saying, you're already clean. Because of the words I spoke, you're already there. You already have everything it takes to live a good and godly life. You require nothing else. You are already clean. Get it? You get it? Isn't that wonderful that God has chosen to do all of this on His own? Now, I don't want you to think that this is the only example or description of the kingdom. The Bible is full of metaphors and example that explain exactly what I just told you. That we are dependent on God and it's all about God and very little about us. But let's just take one more so that you can see another example at how perfectly it maps to the vine and the branches. As they're walking by the temple... If you were to turn to the left as they're going north and walked into the temple area, you would come across the furniture that's in the temple. You would come across the, the, um, the fire where they do the sacrifices. You come to the laver where the water is for, for washing and, and cleaning. And over on one side would be the table of showbread. In the middle would be the altar of incense and your prayer. And on the other side is a lampstand. I think we have a picture of it. The other side is a lampstand, and we call it a menorah. It's a seven-branch lampstand that's fed with oil and then lit. And the purpose, if you go back to Leviticus and you read about the furniture that Moses was to have built to put in the temple, it's interesting the meaning behind this menorah. 
because it's put there to show the light or the glory of God in the temple area. But listen to how it was to be made. And God told Moses to make it exactly like this. And while I'm telling you how it's made, I want you to think about how it exactly matches the story of the vine and the branches. He said it's to be made of one piece of gold. It's not to be making, made with pieces. It's to be fashioned from one chunk of gold, right? An intact vine and branches all together, not parts, right? Okay, and as you fashion it, you're to fashion it into seven branches, a center branch, which you're going to pour the oil in, and then it's going to flow to the six other branches, and then it's going to be lit, and it's going to show forth this light in the temple. Now, for the sake of time, I'd love to spend like two or three sermons and talk about the furniture in the temple, but let me quickly summarize what I just said and listen how exactly it maps to the vine and the branches. God said, make it into one Peace. What is one significant of in the Bible? God, the one and only God. And you're to you're to fashion it into seven branches. What does seven mean? Perfection, right? And in Bible understanding, perfection means that whatever I'm about to show you is perfect in its purpose. It's designed for a purpose. And the way I'm going to show it to you is perfect in fulfilling that purpose. So what the menorah is about to show us is perfect for showing forth the light of God, the glory of God in the temple. And the way it was to be done is that oil was to be poured down the center. And oil is symbolic of what? The Holy Spirit and the life flow of God down into the six. And what does six represent? It's the number of man. So now listen when I put it all together. You are to come together in one. Drawing life from God himself to feed you that you might show forth the light and the glory of God. Doesn't that sound exactly like the vine and the branches? This is just two of the many examples and metaphors. This is the way the kingdom works. You can't make it work any other way. It only works like this. It must be God and us submitting to God. So then, let me just summarize it like this. You need to understand that you have to be attached if you're a branch. You have to be one with the menorah if you're a branch in the menorah. So basically what I'm telling you as being attached to a vine, no vine, no, no fruit. In your life, no vine, no life. In your, in your life, if there's no vine, nothing. There can be nothing of value in your life if you're not attached. That's what Jesus is saying. If there's going to be anything meaningful come from your life that's going to go beyond your grave, it has to be authored and sourced from God himself because nothing else will survive the grave. Only things that are divine will, will survive the grave. Okay, so this is producing fruit. Now, 
Make sure you understand, we started out saying this is an issue of identity. It's, it works like DNA. If we took an apple tree and we had branches att attached to the apple tree, the apple tree is sourcing life into the branches. Apple DNA. What kind of fruit is that tree going to produce? Apples, right? It can't help but produce apples. If that apple tree tried really, really hard, if that apple tree prayed and did sacrifices, how long would it take to make an orange? Just one. It can never produce an orange because it's not in its nature. And God from creation said, go forth and multiply everything in its kind. Everything in kind, according to its DNA. So now, let me pose the question again. Apple tree, apple life produces what? Apples. A life filled with the earnest of the Spirit and the very life of God in you produces what kind of fruit? Spirit fruit. You can't help it. You can't help but to produce spirit fruit. It's like an apple tree trying not to produce apples and to produce orange, oranges. It can't. It's not in its DNA. If you are really born again and the Spirit of God lives in you, you cannot help but produce spirit fruit. You can't produce anything else because that's the life you're drawing on. Make sense? Okay. So now, since... The story of the Bible says that in order to be loved, you had to have the right to choose. So now you get to choose if you want to be a branch attached or not. What if you choose poorly? Let's go on with our scripture in verse 6. What if you choose poorly? If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and it withers. And such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. No vine, no attachment, no life, no fruit. You can do nothing apart from me. In fact, you can't behave and pretend your way. In chapter 7, I think, in John, uh, Jesus is speaking. And he says um, that in that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name, drive out demons. In your name, Jesus, do many miracles. And listen to what Jesus said. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So just because you're churching doesn't mean you're attached. Just because you're going through the motions doesn't mean it's for real. Jesus himself said... When that day comes, I will say, I never knew you. Not only did he never know you, away from me, you evildoers. I thought they said they were doing things in Jesus' name. But they were doing things in Jesus' name. It wasn't being done from a flow of God that's in them producing the fruit. You understand the difference? This means life and death. It's important that you understand this. So we're talking about fruit. How? Why? 
Let's go on and read the rest of our scripture for today. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to glory to, to my father's glory. So why do we produce fruit? It's for the father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing ourselves to uh, showing yourselves to be my disciples as the father has loved me. So I have loved you. Now, remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I kept my father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Jesus is saying, I loved and obeyed the father and it produced joy in me. And you read in other places in the scripture that for the joy placed before him, Jesus went through suffering and death execution. So this joy is important for Jesus. It's important for you to understand. So Jesus obeyed and loved the father and it produced joy in him. He says, if you obey and love me, I will be in you. Well, if he's in you. And love is and um, and if the father is in him and him in the father, then that means you get the joy that gets planted in you when Jesus abides in you. So love and obedience will produce joy. Let me help you understand how important joy is. If I said to you, I want everybody here today. Your pastor is going to take names. Come back tonight at midnight and we're going to have a prayer meeting. I dare say every one of you, including me, will whine about that. Okay, I'm not too keen on coming back for a prayer meeting at midnight. Certainly we could do it now. But if I told you I am independently wealthy and anyone who will be here at midnight to catch the bus, you have you and your whole family two week fully paid vacation to Disney World. Everything from the time you get on the bus until you get off the bus in two weeks. I dare say the excitement of that opportunity, you would not have a problem waking up at midnight. In fact, you probably like me would not sleep. Okay. The joy, the excitement of that opportunity became strength to you. For some reason you were weak to get up for a prayer meeting, but all of a sudden you were strong to get up to go to Disney World. Okay. So now that we've laughed at ourselves, think about what this is saying. It goes back to the question at the beginning. Do you believe if you believe enough and understand what the gospel means to you and the power that it gives to us by the very spirit of God that lives in us and dwells in us, it would produce such joy that you could walk through persecution. You can handle the crisis that comes up. You can handle that guy that cuts you off at the traffic light. Okay, because of the joy that's on the other side, because you know that in every situation you get confronted with, God is with you. He's Yahweh Shama, Yahweh Shama, the God that's there. He's always there. He is going to help you through every situation. If you really understand that the joy of that will compel you, it'll make you strong. Get it?
Okay, so then, what is this fruit that we're talking about? We said that we're going to bear fruit. Well, the fruit is described in Galatians chapter 5, and it's the fruit of the Spirit. Remember, apple tree, apples. Spirit uh, tree, spirit fruit. The spirit fruit is described. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, uh, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is the fruit of the Spirit. If you do not stifle it, these things will bubble up in you to such an extent that your life will change. You will, you will be a different person. You will be the kind of person that behaves the way you would like to behave. Okay? So that's the fruit we're talking about. So if we attach and we have this opportunity for God, life, and fruit, because he's the true vine, that must mean there's other vines or else it wouldn't be a choice. So if you don't choose God and his vine, his source of life, then by default, what do you choose? Well, you choose things like the vine of possessions, like riches, money, stuff. When you get in a crisis, are you not worried because you have money? Or you're not worried because you know no matter what, God's going to take care of you. Okay? Um, do, do you not worry because you have, you have food and you have money for food? Or do you not worry because God's promised to provide for you? Because as soon as you say you have money for food, what if there's no food to buy? And then if there's food to buy, what if your body can't eat the food? What if you continually to throw it up? And you can't eat the food. What if you can eat the food, but it, you can't absorb the vitamins and you die withered because your body can't handle it? You, trust me, your life comes from God. It doesn't come from the vine of possessions. It doesn't come from the vine of, uh, of achievement. Or listen closely, the vine of religious services. Eating from the buffet of religion. Oh, gee, I go to pr prayer meeting every week. I'm in that Bible study. You in that Bible study? Oh, I'm in that Bible study. I tithe. Oh, I tithe and I give. You know, feeding from the buffet of religious services. Jesus said, I never knew you. I never knew you. You're pretending. You're pretending. You're not, you don't really belong to me. So now, let's see if we can land this plane. So if you answered the question at the beginning... And I, when I asked you, did, do you believe? Do you believe enough that you're content with your life? You're content with the fruit. You're content that you can turn away from the world. If that's not something you're content with, then what's the problem? This is easy. It's only one of two things. There's, there's no more. It's one of two things. Either you are not vitally connected to the vine, which means you do not have your life source coming from God, you're relying on other things. Or you are connected. At one time you were born again. You have the spirit in you. But you are stifling the flow of life that's in you. So either you don't have life at all. And woe is you. You need to be saved. But maybe you have the life. But there's no manifestation of fruit. Because you continually run back to your old ways and you're stifling the flow of the life that is trying to come in and through you. Okay, it's only one of two things. So then, 
As we ask the question and close this, this sermon, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Therefore, if anyone hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, he is like a wise man that builds his house on rock. And the rain came, the streams rose, the wind beat against that house, but it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. It's drawing life from God, built on the rock, drawing the very lifeblood of God into your life, producing health, producing strength. But, he said, anyone who takes these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man that builds his house on sand. And the rain came and the streams rose and the wind beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. Don't let your life crash. Do you believe if you can't sit there and say, I am totally confident that I can abandon everything else and totally do what Jesus asked me to do. Follow me. Then please keep sitting. But right now, I'd invite the pastors, the elders, prayer team, if you get, I think you pray in the middle. I would compel each and every one of you. I will personally be up there for prayer from one of your pastors. Get prayed for, get hands laid on you that you would get this. Because if you don't get it, you die. This is the gospel of life. The only life. Amen?